Hi, my name is Steele Russell. I am the co-host of the Brav Bros podcast. I am a father. I am a husband. I'm a private chef, a former professional baseball player, and I am an alcoholic. And today is my five-year sobriety date, which is a big deal. That's a big milestone. And I put a call out to the audience a couple of weeks ago and asked you guys, hey, would you want to hear my story? Do you want to hear how I got to where I am today? And what I always reference when I talk about when I used to drink. And it was met with a resounding yes, which was uh, amazing. And every year when I hit my milestones, I like to make a video to talk. Um, I usually do it just on my Instagram, but I either share a story or I discuss something that maybe I've learned um, over the past year. But this time around, I've been presented with such a unique opportunity thanks to you, our amazing listeners. Uh, I have a platform in which I can speak to a lot of people. And you guys said you wanted to hear my story, and I would love to share my story with you. Um, when I do this, it's it's more for me. Uh, it keeps me honest. It keeps me open. Um, a big issue I had while I was actively drinking was I covered everything up. If it was an issue I was having or something that was bothering me or just anything in general, I just didn't talk about things. It was kind of my MO. It's kind of how I would deal with anything. And for the longest time, um, I was the peacekeeper in my family, in my friend group, in pretty much every facet of my life. I was always that guy. If something went wrong, you would go to me and I would help you take care of it. And I liked being that guy. I still like being that guy. That's still a part of who I am, but it's taken on a different role. It's not all consuming, but what I've learned um, the hard way, if you're constantly helping others, if you're constantly focused on other people's issues, other people's problems, and you cast your stuff to the side, eventually that shit piles up. When you have problems, they don't go away just because you you push them that way. They they build up. And when enough shit builds up over time, something's got to give. And that's what happened to me. And I'm just going to jump right in. Uh, I'm going to start towards the end. And for those that don't know, I was previously married, and we got married really young. Uh, we were 23 years old at the time. We had my daughter when I was 25. And... You know, we thought we had everything figured out. I thought I had everything figured out. I was a professional athlete. I was married. I had a kid. Um, I felt like a grown-up. I felt like a full-blown adult at the age of 25, 26, and I still had a lot to learn. And um, in 2016 is kind of when it started to ramp up. Um, things at home weren't great. Um, drinking aside, you know, we just, it was a tough time. It was a really tough time, and I realized that if I drank, I didn't give a shit as much uh, about everything. Um, if I was stressed at work, stressed about life, stressed about anything, or if I had problems going on that I didn't want to deal with, if I just jumped in the bottle, it was a lot easier to move past those things. So it began to snowball, uh, and that's what people in rehab say, people in recovery will tell you, you're functional until you're not. And once you're not functional, it goes bad really fast. And 
my ex and I separated in April, I believe, of 2018. And when she left, her and my daughter moved back to Texas, and I was in Florida alone. And um, it was just me and my dog, Lou. Um, and for the first time in a long time, I had no real responsibility to anybody but myself. And that's when it got bad. Um, when they left, I shut the door to my bedroom, uh, and I shut the door to my daughter's bedroom in our apartment. And I lived exclusively in the living room. Um, I couldn't bear to walk by my daughter's room and see her stuff in there. Um, and, uh, to know that she wasn't there was really hard. Um, so to deal with that, I just closed the door. I closed the door and I lived in my living room. And what I would do is I would wake up, I would finish whatever was left in my vodka bottle from the night before, and then I would go coach professional athletes as a professional baseball coach. And when I was done my day, about four or five in the afternoon, I would stop and pick up another bottle and I would go home. I would sit on the same spot in my couch. I wouldn't eat, didn't need any food. I lived off of vodka, literally. And I would sit on that same spot in my couch and I would drink until I passed out. And if I finished the whole bottle, sometimes I would go get another one. Uh, and that's when it started to increase. But the other part of my mornings is I'd wake up and I would start out by throwing up every day where I'd have to go to the bathroom and not to be too graphic, but it was usually just blood because my insides were shutting down. Um, I began to retain a lot of fluid on my body and my eyes were beginning to turn yellow. I was killing myself. I was killing myself from the inside out. And I'll never forget there was a specific morning and this image will be forever imprinted in my head. Um, and it's probably a good thing, honestly. But I woke up and I was standing in front of the mirror naked. And um, I legitimately did not recognize the man that was staring back at me. And not just because mentally I was all over the map, but more so physically. Like, I looked grotesque. Uh, my stomach was distended. It was all the way out to here. My eyes were yellow. Not a shade of yellow. My eyes were yellow. Um, my stomach was all disformed because certain organs were protruding out. You're not supposed to feel your organs. Um, that's, a, that's a good rule of thumb. If you can feel your organs in pain, Something's probably seriously wrong, but I, I remember distinctly in that moment sitting there looking at myself and um, just remembering like, you can't, you can't come back from this. This, you, you're too far gone. Look what you've done to yourself. Who are you? Like, this is it. This is who you are now. And from that point on, when I would get back from the field and start drinking at home, Every night when I would wait to pass out or fall asleep, whatever you want to call it, I would just hope that I wouldn't wake up um, because it would hurt so much less to just go to sleep and just stay asleep. Um, and looking back now on that, the, the fact that that was my normal, that was my, my every day was just praying that I wouldn't wake up again. Um, and, you know, I wasn't of sound mind. I wasn't thinking about everything, the bigger picture. You know, the fact that I was 
praying to leave this world and leave my daughter behind. Um, it's unfathomable, but that, that should kind of paint the picture of where I was at mentally. And, um, it all came crashing down. Finally, I showed up to the field one day, uh, and I was hammered and there'd been some speculation. I think there'd been some suspicions, but there was nothing confirmed that I had been, uh, actively drinking, but that was, that was the last thing they needed to see. I went to coach a game in Florida at noon. I was in rookie ball, which is all the new draft picks, all the younger guys. You play at 12 in the afternoon in the summertime in Florida. There's no fans. You play on the backfields of the spring training complex. It's really a grind, but it's also hot as hell. And I showed up hammered. We had a game, and I got off the bench to run out onto the field, and I fell down in the dugout in front of everybody, the whole team, my coaches, my manager. And immediately my manager said, sit down. He goes, you need to sit down. You can't go out there. And I, of course, like feigned a knee injury. I like, grabbed my knee and said, ah, you know, trying to fake it off. But they knew what was going on. And um, my trainer pulled me into the training room after the game and put me on the table and said, we need to figure this out. He said, you're not okay. And he strapped me into an EKG machine. And my resting heart rate was 149 beats per minute, which is not good. Um, that's borderline cardiac arrest. That's borderline stroke. It's bad. Uh, and that was me at total rest. Um, so immediately sent me to the doctor down there to get blood work done. And it had been about five hours since my last drink and my blood alcohol content was 0.36. And that was five hours after I drank. So at its peak, it could have been somewhere in the fives. And the scariest part of all of that is I remember that whole day. I remember getting to the field. I remember being in the dugout. I remember going to the doctor. And I remember getting home from the hospital and getting an Uber to go to the liquor store. And immediately after I'd gotten blood work, had the doctors there tell me I wasn't in great shape, I went and got a bottle of vodka and I chugged it as fast as I could. My boss called me and said not to come in. And um, the next 48 hours are kind of a blur. I don't remember a whole lot. It's it's kind of a, a known thing that when addicts or alcoholics hit their end, um, the end of their run, if you will, it's kind of like your last hurrah. And that's what I did. I bought a bunch of vodka and I just drank and drank and drank and drank. And um, my uncle flew out the following day um, or a couple days later and packed up all my shit in my truck, packed up me, packed up my dog and uh, drove us north to Philly. On the way to Philadelphia, I went through withdrawal in DC. And if you haven't gone through withdrawal, it's enough to make you not want to drink ever again. It was the worst thing I've ever experienced. Um, my eyes, I was getting tunnel vision. I was hallucinating. The sounds were so loud, it sounded like they were inside of my head. My heart rate, again, was through the roof. And this is a public service announcement for anybody out there. Alcohol is the only withdrawal that you can die from. We did not know that. We thought I had to white-knuckle it till we got back north. What I should have been doing is drinking from Florida to Philly to make sure I got there safely and been detoxed in the hospital with doctors around me. We didn't know any better, so we were doing what we thought was right. But I could have easily had a stroke or a heart attack. So if you are 
struggling and you go through withdrawal and you're trying to white knuckle it, make sure you're detoxing in an actual center, an actual facility under the care of healthcare professionals because you can die. But we made it. And I remember getting to Philly and things are a little foggy, but for the most part, I remember. And I got out of the car and my mom was standing there. We got back to my parents' house and um, I just said, you know, I'm going through withdrawal. And she told me to go lie down and I did. And she talked to my other uncle who's been sober for about 25 years now. And he said, you need to get him to the hospital immediately. Uh, he can die. They need to monitor him. They need to make sure he's going to be okay. And uh, she woke me up and we got in the car. She drove me to the hospital in Abington. Um, and when we got there, uh, things got really bad, really quick. And um, my blood pressure was 190 over 140 or 150, I believe, which is like stage three hypertension, which is um, really unsafe. And they got me checked into a room and the doctors started to get blood work and run tests. And uh, the prognosis wasn't good at all. Um, they weren't very confident that I was going to make it out of the hospital um, to the point where they called my dad, who was in Major League Baseball at the time, and told him to get to the hospital um, just in case. And once the test came back, it turned out that at 27 years old, I had cirrhosis. I had cirrhosis of the liver. I was carrying over 20 pounds of fluid on my body. Um, again, my eyes were yellow. I was really weak. Uh, I was bleeding internally. I was um, falling apart. They said they hadn't seen that kind of liver damage in anybody under the age of 65 before. And um, that's really... Uh, really hard to hear. But after about four days of uh, being in there, I was in there for a total of five days. But after four days, the doctor came in and said, we do think that you're going to be okay. We think you can recover from this. We're not going to pump the fluid out because we want to see if your liver is going to return to functionality. Um, and another thing that a lot of people may not know is alcoholics don't get liver transplants. Uh, because they're nervous we're going to ruin that one too. Um, so that one was the only one I have, this guy right here. Um, but on that fifth day, they came in and were talking to me about rehab. And um, somebody from Karen actually came to talk to me. And Karen's a treatment center in Wernersville. Um, it's an amazing place. And uh, they asked me, you know, what do you think? And at that point in my life, I didn't have a job. Um, I didn't have a house. I was getting divorced. Uh, I hadn't seen my daughter. So I said, yeah, let's go, I guess. Um, and I can't put into words really how scary it feels and how nervous you get driving up to a rehab facility knowing you're getting checked in for an unknown amount of time. I remember sitting in the front seat as we pulled up and my mom was sitting behind me and I was gripping her hand as hard as I could. And I was shaking. I used to shake a lot. Uh, I don't do it anymore, but that, that was kind of my um, go-to. If, if I got really nervous, I would start to shake uncontrollably. And I was shaking and I was holding my mom's hand. And I remember she was scared. Uh, and my stepdad was driving. He was scared. Uh, we all really didn't know, um, sorry, what to expect. Um, you hear 
from a young age, you know, rehab is stigmatized. Rehab is talked about as a place for degenerates. You know, drug addicts go there, alcoholics go there. When you picture an alcoholic, you think of a homeless guy gripping a paper bag and living under a bridge. Um, what you don't know is the story behind that. What you don't know is how that got there. Um, and you learn really quick. And when I got there, I was I was met by an amazing group in my unit um, that were really supportive and made me feel comfortable. Um, but it took me a while to to buy in. I went to all the classes. I went to the meetings. You know, I didn't cause any trouble. I woke up on time. I, I did what I was supposed to do because that's how I'm wired. I, if you tell me what I need to do, I'll do it. But as far as believing that I should be there, I did not buy in for about three weeks. And I was only there for 30 days. Um, so three weeks out of 30 days is a big portion. And I'll never forget my, my biggest issue was comparing myself. I'm not as bad as him. I'm not as bad as him. He does heroin. I'm not as bad as that guy. He lived in a dumpster and did crystal meth. I'm not as bad as that guy. He hit a family with his car and killed somebody. I'm not that guy. That's not me. And I'll never forget in week three, we had a meeting um, and it was all fathers. It was an entire group of dads. And um, everyone goes through and, and says, you know, hi, my name is so-and-so. You know, I've got two kids, whatever. And it gets to me. And again, up until this point, I, I always gave the run of the mill answers. I was very generic. I, I always said what I was supposed to say, but I never dove in. I never broke down and opened up and really became vulnerable because my entire life, I wasn't, you're not supposed to be. And you're in professional sports, especially you got to be, you know, full of testosterone and like bow up all the time and growing up that way as well. So for me, trying to get in touch with my emotional side, trying to unlock my vulnerability was, was not even on my radar. I didn't understand. And in meetings, you're not supposed to cross talk. So if I'm sharing, I don't expect you to cut me off. If you're sharing, I'm not allowed to cut you off and give you my opinion. That's not what it's there for. But it got to me and I started to share. I said, hi, my name is Steele. I have a daughter. She's two at the time. And I want to get this right for her and blah, blah, blah. And as I'm talking, um, an older man cuts me off mid-sentence. And he says, you don't know how fucking lucky you are. And I was livid. Like, what are you talking about? And he said, my kids are 26, 24, 21, and 17. He goes, they remember every single thing that I've done. And he says, if you get this right, then your daughter doesn't have to know that side of you. And it was like somebody hit me in the head with a fucking sledgehammer. In that moment right there, that man saved my life. Because everything clicked. Everything. Why I needed to be here. Why I needed to get my shit right. Why I could never drink again. And most importantly for me, what it did was why I'm no different than any other person in that facility. Why I'm no different than anybody else. Why we're so quick to judge the homeless man. Gripping a bag under the bridge. You don't know how they got there. And you learn really quick when the fog lifts, when you're sitting there with all of these amazing people in rehab, and the fog lifts and people start to get clean, and they're two, three, four weeks in, you start to talk and you hear their stories and you listen and you learn. These are amazing people. So many addicts and alcoholics, they're amazing fucking people, and they just go down the wrong path, and it happens so fast. 
Now, you don't even know what's happening. You have no clue. But the fact that people sit there and compare, it, it's so counterproductive because you never look inward. You never learn about yourself. You never realize, I am the heroin addict. I am the kid living in a dumpster. I am the guy that hit a family. It just didn't happen to me. That's luck. It's dumb luck that I didn't go down those paths. That's all. It's a flip of a fucking coin. And I had the nerve to sit there and compare myself that I'm better than them. Who the fuck am I? But once that hit, once that clicked for me, it opened up everything. I knew why I was here. I knew what I had to do. And I was so fucking determined after that for my daughter, for my mom, my dad, my stepdad, my stepmom, my family, my brothers and sisters. But I got out um, about 10 days after that. Uh, I did 30 days in there and um, left on their recommendation. I didn't leave early or anything. I stayed the whole time. And when I got out, I had no idea what I was going to do. For those that don't know, you know, when I was 18 years old, I moved out of my parents' house pretty much because of baseball. You know, I was playing summer ball every summer. I would come back maybe for two weeks, maybe four max. But for the most part, I was on my own after that. Um, not that I wasn't getting support. I just had to travel the country for ball. I moved back into my parents' house when I was 28. I turned 28 in rehab. Moved back into my parents' house, 28, with no job, out of rehab. Haven't seen my daughter in a while. In the middle of a divorce with nowhere to live. And that's where my life had gone. And it happened within a year and a half. That's how fast you can lose everything. And... um I had no idea what I was going to do. Baseball was my entire life since I was a kid. That's all I knew. I grew up in it. I wanted to be a professional baseball player. That's it. And I was. And I gave it all up. And what I didn't realize is that it was one of the biggest blessings in my life was to move on from it. And that kind of kick-started when I was, you know, asking my mom and talking to her. She worked out and worked with a gym in Chestnut Hill and said they need a new male trainer. Would you be interested? And I said, yeah, why not? You know, I worked out my whole life because of baseball. I found a certification test in, like, bumfuck PA in the middle of nowhere. I drove, didn't have time to study because it was the next day, and hoped that I'd learned enough from my career in baseball to pass because it was just a pass fail kind of deal. And I did, I passed, um, which was awesome. And I started training the next week and being at that gym, I fell ass backwards into a private chef gig because I had an Instagram account that I do food on called steals meals. And she asked, you know, do you cook for people? And I said, no, I take pictures of the food that I cook and I post it. That's, that's literally it. She says, do you want to? And I said, sure. I'll try it. Why not? And I had my first private dinner for one of the most affluent families in all of Philadelphia, which was a very nerve wracking experience. It went super well, which is what jump started my career as a private chef. But uh, that's a story for a different day. Um, but all of those things came about because of the people around me. And I can't say enough about how much I've been blessed um, by my family. Uh, my friends, when I got home, Shooter, that fucking moron, um, reconnecting with him and a lot of my other high school friends. Um, this is a life I never dreamed I'd have. I didn't even have it on my radar uh, forever. I was a baseball player. 
that's all I wanted to do. And, um, because of this experience and I'll never forget when I was in rehab, it was like the third day and this woman spoke to us and, um, she had been sober for a while and she introed with, hi, my name is so-and-so and I'm a grateful alcoholic. And I was so mad. I was so upset. I didn't understand. Like, how can you stand up there and be grateful for this? Like, this is terrible. I lost everything. And um, I didn't get it <laughs> until the last day of rehab. Um, I'd been in there for 30 days, and you kind of give a speech to your unit. The way they set it up is you, you, as you progress through rehab, you sort of take on a leadership role. It happens with everybody for the most part, where you the group kind of looks to you. And then when you leave, the next person steps up and so on and so forth. And so I spoke to my group at the end and I said, look, my third day here, I heard this woman say that she was grateful and I was livid and I hated her. I absolutely hated her in that moment. Um, but I'm, but I'm standing before you today as a grateful alcoholic and I sit before you all today and talk to you guys as a grateful alcoholic because I wouldn't have any of this shit if I didn't go through what I went through. I wouldn't have this outlook on life, my family, <laughs> reconnecting with Dev, who's been a fucking godsend. She's amazing. The relationship with my daughter has never been stronger. My family, my parents. I would have none of this without being an alcoholic. And I speak to you like this and I open up like this one to remain vulnerable, to remain emotionally connected, to remain open, to remain honest, to speak from the heart, because I think it's so important to be that person I need to be because I know what I'm like if I'm not. On the flip side, I also need to share this to try to erase the stigma that comes along with this shit. If anybody out there, I don't care what you're going through, I don't care what you think you know, this can happen to anybody, and people's problems are people's problems. It's not up to us to decide what impacts a person more than the other person. You don't know. What might seem trivial to you could be the hardest thing that person's ever gone through. Who are you to decide? Who am I to decide? So walk with grace. Treat people with grace. Be open. Understand that there's a lot of shit going on. And we all deal with a lot of shit. And that's okay. It's okay to hurt. It's okay to need help. It's okay to talk about it. And it's okay to open up. And I pray that anybody listening, if you need help, if you're teetering on the fence, if you need somebody to talk to, talk to somebody. I know how scary it is. I know how hard it is. If you want to talk to me, message me, DM me on my personal page on Brav Bros. I don't care. But if you need to talk to somebody, I'm always here. But I'm just grateful for what I've been given. Um, I never expected to have a second chance on life. Uh, standing in the mirror that one day, you know, five plus years ago. I was convinced that was it. And I look around now and everything that I have, and I am the most grateful alcoholic you'll ever meet.
So thank you to all of you amazing listeners. I never dreamed that I would have a podcast with one of my best friends and sit here and talk to all of you and have you actually listen. This has been one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had. Um, my amazing wife, Dev, all of her support. <laughs> my parents, all four of them. Got mom, stepdad, dad, stepmom, all of them. My little brother, Stone, my older brother, Brooks, Riley, Finley, Sydney, um, my in-laws, Susie and Weed. Just everybody, man. Who'd have thunk, huh? Um, but thank you for everything to all of you, to everybody listening. Um, I wouldn't be here without all of you. And I know that. And I take a lot of credit for what I've done. I know I did it, but it would be impossible without everybody around me. So <laughs> cheers to five years, baby. And, uh, here's to many, many more. I, uh, I love you all.